This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. We know that the most food insecure person in our country is the mother of a family uh, because she will, the first thing she will do is reduce the uh, kind yeah. of food she's eating. And then the second thing she'll do is reduce the amount of food so that she'll make sure that the kids get um, the good stuff. So they'll get the fruit, they'll get the vegetables, they'll get the protein particularly. So that uh, it would be very, very common that if there's a meal of rice and meat that she will only eat rice. We live in a country of abundance. There is truly enough. There is enough if we share. I mean, I, I think the question that I'd want to ask is what would actually happen if everybody had what they needed. In part one of this two-part discussion, we heard how Auckland City Mission CEO Helen Robinson protects herself and her team against burnout and how her organisation is building a wellbeing culture. Today, we're talking about the pervasive and deadly impact poverty and homelessness has on wellbeing and what we can do to change the current situation where 200,000 children in New Zealand live in poverty. Kia ora. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan. This season of Bringing Wellbeing to Life is focusing on how we build collective resilience. I'm talking with change makers who are making the world around them more resilient for their colleagues, students or fellow citizens. I'm delighted to continue this conversation with Helen Robinson, CEO of Auckland City Mission, and we're going to dive straight back in now. So let's come on and talk about well-being in poverty, because I think sometimes people think, oh, yeah, it's tough being poor because you don't have stuff, um, or you don't have a home, or you don't have the money for nice things. But it, it's so much more than that. And, and I wanted to kind of think about it through the lens of Tefara Tapifa, um, you know, a, a holistic model of well-being. Um, but before we get into that, does that make sense to you that you are concerned about all the deep levels of impact that poverty has on well-being? I, I totally. Um, I mean, that's it's just another way of saying why I'm here. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and and Denise, I have to start with um, you know, what's the experience of the body? Like, what is going on in the body? Mm-hmm. So it just just very very genuinely, one of the big pieces of of areas of work the mission does is respond to people who don't have enough food or enough money for food. So um, uh, in in New Zealand, this is you know unbelievably and wildly growing. So I believe 20% of New Zealand is food insecure today, so does not have enough money for food. That's literally one in five of us. Uh, Parts of Auckland up here, um, I would say it's uh, closer to two-fifths, so four in ten of us, or two in five of us. So it's it's a large problem, but you can just imagine what it is like to literally be hungry, Um, what it is like for your body to not have the adequate nutrition like you, you feel it in your body. So we know that the most food insecure person in our country is the mother of a family uh, because she will, the first thing she will do is reduce the uh, kind yeah. of food she's eating. And then the second thing she'll do is reduce the uh, um, amount of food so that uh, she'll make sure that the kids get um, the good stuff. 
So they'll get the fruit, they'll get the vegetables, they'll get the protein particularly. Uh, so that uh, it would be very, very common that if there's a meal of rice and meat, that she will only eat rice. Yeah. So, so actually, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell you that over time, that actually means that the core functioning of your body is broken down. And in fact, um, the Ministry of Health itself has released a, um, some information uh, in 2019 actually talking about the health impacts of security on children and, and it, it, it um, increases everything, it increases obesity, it increases asthma, it um, affects mental health. It like, reduces immunity, all of that, yeah. Totally. So it starts, so being, being poor actually uh, compromises your physical health and compromises your mental health. So, so you're actually not starting at a level playing field. Um, the research that I've done to food security, if we stay there, shows that there is a direct impact between mental health and actually the level of distress people are suffering and their well-being. That was the thesis that I actually did. So I use the World Health Organisations. They have a very simple five-point measurement of well-being. And, and there's just this direct connection. So if you are food insecure, what that means is not only are you hungry, you are unwell and you are distressed, and you are uh, nutritionally compromised. So that you imagine um, trying to learn in that environment, trying to work in that environment, try to maintain healthy relationships in that environment. Um, you know, you you make me hungry, and I get pretty grumpy after a while. Yeah, and so, like that, and and just, and I I think we sometimes forget the impact. Like I know. I, I hear people saying, well, why can't these poor people just make more of an effort? And, you know, and you think, really, do you understand anything? And at that point, I always want to push um, Sendil Malanathan's book, Scarcity, into their hands, where we know that not having, um, not having enough food, not ha and, and there's a sheer load of the worry, as well as the physical impact on us, that we can't, we literally, our brains don't function as well. Totally, it becomes a physiological thing. So, so that's when I said to you, we really have to start at the point of the body. Or we have a primary medical centre here, which is extraordinary to be to have the services we are and part of that. And um, uh, the the average age, so two thirds, so it's about eighteen hundred people enrolled there. Two thirds of people there are very vulnerably housed or on the street. Um, and the, uh, the average age of, of people uh, dying through the quarter centre is 55. The national average is 82. So you start to see that we are, we are talking about, and that's particularly uh, homelessness, has a direct impact on the uh, well-being of our bodies. So people literally die from homelessness. Yeah. That, that's the illness. Or, or poverty is the illness, or trauma is the illness, or colonisation is the illness, mm. and, and it then has these flow-on effects. And so you, you start with the body, and I think implicit in all of that is the utter powerlessness around it, that um, we still uh, belong, sadly, tragically, to a society that has a point of view that actually says there are people who, uh, um, if you are poor, you are morally um, not good. Morally you bankrupt are, as well as, as financially. 
Partially, yeah. so I've used the language before that we condemn people to poverty and then we condemn them for being poor. So we say you are a bad person because you are hungry or you are a bad person because you are homelessness. And it's madness. It's, it's just it's pure yeah. bloody madness. So that powerlessness, because I have yet to meet someone who wants to be hungry or yet to meet someone who wants to be homelessness, that, that is and powerlessness often internalises into shame. Yeah. So it, it is truly crippling. So there's the, the physical impact, there's the mental impact, there's the psychological, social. yeah. We're, we're and, crossing psychological and social now with the, 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 the shame, the stigma, the, as well as the worry of what, where will I get food, how will I pay rent, can I be safe? And then, and then that whole relational piece of I don't belong, I don't fit in, I have no connections. I don't have a home. I'm yeah. not worthy. Um, and uh, homelessness and poverty, part of their key characteristics is the isolation yeah. uh, on all kinds of levels. So it would be really common that I would hear a story. It's quite common in New Zealand. You'd hear someone say, you, you go to your friend's place or your family's place and you bring a plate. That sense of manakitanga and hospitality is so deeply embedded. And what actually happens to you when you don't have the ability to do that? Yeah. So, and that's that's not so much about the physical impact, but actually about a social isolation. So um, uh, parents who don't have an ability to put food for kids to go to school, so that, that you know, they're in their lunch boxes. So the shame associated with that. It, it, it speaks right to the heart of belonging. Mm. So, so poverty excludes and isolates. So it, it affects people on so many different levels. Um, and in fact, in the end, I think it is that shame or that isolation that is really at the core of what is so crippling. And I think of, you know, before, even before homelessness, the, the poverty where you turn down invitations because you can't bring a plate. So you cut yourself off from those connections to save face and not be ashamed. And then, and then once you're out of home, it's really harder to maintain any of them. And so it's a really... It's a real cycle and self-fulfilling, isn't it? Um, or I think of the kids who um, uh, don't have rugby boots, so they're not playing in rugby or uh, can't afford the, the fees to play netball or there is a whole lot of um, isolation that is created in terms of not being able to belong. To, to participate, to belong, to join in, yeah. And... Mm -hmm. and Poverty is often defined as your ability to participate, so that if I don't have the resources to be able to, then I'm um, in, in the context of the place and time that I belong to, then actually that is a key indication of poverty. Yeah, yeah. And, and not one, and one that has very deep and abiding impacts on a whole life trajectory. If you think about the children who don't get to participate in sport, who don't get to maintain extended family connections, all of those protective things that, that are removed when a child lives in poverty. Totally. And it's not only uh, that life's trajectory, it becomes generational because uh, what then happens to their children or their children's children or their children's children. So it's, it, um, it, it has um, lifetimes of impact. Yeah. 
And then, you know, and we're kind of, we're, we, we have talked about the spiritual or wairua sort of element of it, that um, when someone is living in poverty or homeless, there's also, you're cut off from a sense of purpose and an ability to contribute, as well as an ability to participate. So um, I think there's often a kind of a crushing of the spirit as well. Uh, uh, totally. And um, particularly for people uh who have been deeply traumatized and have suffered at the hands of others. Yeah. Um, if our early childhood has taught us that we are not worth anything, and then uh, poverty, uh, and again, colonization reaffirms that, uh, you, I, I think you start to get quite a sense of why things are the way they are and that in fact one of the key characteristics of this all is the powerlessness to change it because it is so pervasive and so extensive um now now the irony of that is or you know for me anyway is that once once i come to stand in that place of understanding the extraordinarily um exquisite pain and suffering that is occurring, uh, then in that place, uh, hope becomes quite real. Um, it, it, it's not killed, actually. It's quite the inverse. I'm not quite sure I understand why, but it's certainly the experience. And I think that is the, the privilege of, of um, wanting or being able to be part of an organisation like the Mission where actually it is only when groups of people gather together to say it doesn't have to be this way. So this, this, the impact of poverty, trauma, colonisation, that is all a construct. That's all we have constructed it. So you made the inverse, it, change it. Yeah, totally. So, so it becomes this incredibly powerful position to actually say with where I am today, with what I have, uh, how can I respond? Absolutely. To, to hear you say that is is very beautiful. And, um, you know, you're describing being with people and watching this incredible suffering and going, and what it turns into is the desire for change. Totally. And it's more than watching, Denise, because if only it, it's, um, it, it's deeper than that and more unconscious. It's, um, it's been a part of. Mm. And and you know on in that vein, we so we're saying poverty affects people at all of these levels, um, and you must see that some people um, are able to cope better than others. Are are there any things that you see that are that you'd regard as really important or protective? Undoubtedly, um, Denise, it's the first thousand days. Like it's it's as clear as clear as clear. In another life, that's what I'm coming back to do. Um, uh, what happens to us uh, at the level of spirit, at the level of body, at the level of phenomena or relationship? Uh, I mean, it's it's those first thousand days are our most powerful opportunity to create change. If a child knows they have been loved, knows they belong, knows where they come from and has been given a genuine opportunity at the level of body to be nurtured and fed well and for attachment to occur. Um, uh, that is the resiliency deal breaker from my point of view. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it means they've, they've learned it, they know it, 
so at, at the level of wire, at the level of, uh, you know, that physiology is wired in and they can go back to it, even if it's been taken off them. So, in, you know, it takes us back to that conversation of trauma before. If, if people have, in those early years, had that protective factor and there is a subsequent traumatic event, that is actually significantly easier to return to to wholeness than someone who has never had that in that first instance. And it's interesting, I was reading, um, and you'll know, Bessel van der Kolk's work, The Body Keeps the Score, and him talking about the Vietnam veterans who they originally began work with who were traumatised tended to respond more easily when they'd had healthy childhoods than working with um, people who were survivors of childhood abuse. Yeah, it's... it's um, and I've gone on record to say that if New Zealand could deal with its violence problem, we wouldn't have uh, the homelessness that we see now. There is a, 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 particularly street homelessness, there is a direct correlation between the impact of violence and childhood violence um, and uh, people who end up on the streets. Yeah. It's, it's as clear as day. In there, you've mentioned as well, um, you know, as part of this first thousand days, when children know who they are, and we know that's connection to identity and culture. So let's come on and talk a bit about that, because we're talking today in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our country has a founding document, Tutiritu Waitangi, that commits us to a bicultural approach. But for most of our history of European colonization, it's not been upheld. And Talk to us a bit more about the ongoing effects on poverty that colonisation has. I'm, um, we have a, a Pau Māori here, so a, a lead Māori leader, uh, Manutia is her title, at her pōwhiri in her opening speech. She uh, literally said these words that are just sit with me deeply, is that actually most of what we do here at the mission is mopping up the impact of colonisation. So you, you take it back when you... Um, uh, render a people landless and you uh, affirm in multiple different ways at the level of wairua that who you are is not good enough, then all you will see for generations and generations and generations is the impact of that poverty and that trauma. So to colonise someone at the deep level of spirit, only harm can come. So you, we see it in ill health, we see it in death, we see it in homelessness, we see it in hunger, we see it in, like we see it everywhere, it's everywhere, it's in my face, it's the most deadliest of diseases that we are uh, often refusing to even acknowledge as killing us, literally killing us. Mm. Um, and it's, it fascinates me because it was so um, universal, before there was globalisation, and we worried about, you know, Coca-Cola, we had colonisation. And it didn't matter whether you were doing it in Ireland, in Aotearoa, in South America or in Africa, the playbook was really similar. You, The people were backward, they were worthless, they were ugly, their music and their dance was primitive, and nothing they had was of value. And then when we internalised that lesson that we were worthless and ugly, we passed it on to our children. Totally. And I think, interestingly, the only thing that was worth something was the land <laughs> from the view of and the colonizers. taken away. Totally. So you strip people of their resource base. I, I think, um, so it, it, it is um, wildly 
outrageous. I mean, I don't even have the language for it, Denise, um, because people are literally dying because of this. Like, it's, 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 it is so wrong and so unjust. What Tatariti does give us, though, is a framework for a way through and out. Um, so I, I do keep coming back to that and speaks deeply to, excuse me, to the journey that the mission is on too. What does it actually mean for us to be a Tatariti partner? How do we how do we really live that? And the big big challenges are about um, power and resource. Um, Say more so, about well. Um, it's, it's very easy or kind of the first level of, of analysis would be to say, um, I don't know, uh, someone's ability to do a pipiha or introduce themselves or to do karaki or wayata or even to speak to them. Um, where actually that first analysis, I believe, is really about what is the privilege as Pākehā that we carry and, and uh, how does that manifest itself. So the privilege manifests itself by and large that it is Pākehā that uh, the decision makers and have power and Pākehā have resources. So um, for Titiriti to be honoured, there needs to be a genuine power sharing and resource sharing. Um, and that's, that's that's that who's thing. at the table, whose voice is heard at the table, all of that. How do and we who own, our who owns, Yeah, who owns the land? Hmm. Uh, um, uh, who's making the decisions about the land, like it becomes very real. So then I have to bring it back to a mission and say, um, what are the uh, decision-making and power structures within our own organisation and um, how do they need to change so that they are genuinely reflective of that partnership um, and where are the resources coming from and where are they spent and who's making the decisions about those resources. So they're incredibly challenging questions for us before I kind of externalise it to the world around me. It's actually just saying, so that, that deep journey that the mission is on. So, for example, we have a, a senior Māori caucus here, so um, a caucus of a group of senior Māori staff, so senior both in terms of age and role, who really form a key tenant to the voice of Māori at the mission. And uh, just in the very, very beginning stages of developing a, a Tiriti caucus, so a, um, a, a caucus of Pākehā, uh, of people who have come to New Zealand to be that other form yeah. of that, that decision-making or certainly that speaking and listening forum. Um, so they're just two very clear ways that we're beginning to develop structures that allow appropriate voice and decisions to be heard and conversations to be shared amongst those entities. Yeah. And it's hard because we can only we can only push for change as far as we're willing to go ourselves. Totally. You know, so we've totally. got to be in it doing it. And it's and it's hard. Um, but I'm I love that you are you are actually grappling with it at, at every level. Um, and I wanted to just, when you look, obviously, and it might be, your answer to my question might be already answered with the thousand days, but what, what is one change that you'd like New Zealanders to make that would improve things for the, the people you're working with? Maybe go one small thing everyone could do today, one huge thing. Go anywhere you like with this. Yeah, anywhere I like. I think... Um... At a core level, New Zealand needs to come to grips with the notion that 
because some people have too much, others have too little. And we need to address the distribution of wealth within our country. And that becomes very personal very quickly. Um, so uh, those who have privilege and resource and power uh, need, um, I think in the first instance, to become conscious of that. I think that is the challenge. Yeah, it's, you, you've come and brought me straight into my mind one of my favourite quotes from Robert Kennedy, which is, in a land of plenty, poverty is evil. And um, the, the constructs that make that poverty realised are evil, yes. And they're not externalised, Denise. They come back to... Uh, the values that you and I hold and then how we hold that together as a collective and then shape it together as a nation. And and it, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. Um, and it's not the fault of somebody else outside of me. It's the responsibility that I have and then the responsibility that we share uh, as a collective uh, in this country. Yeah, that's so, you know, when I think about this, I think to, to be able to live with widespread poverty we have to persuade ourselves that somehow this status quo is acceptable justifiable or unchangeable and i think to do that there's a lot of blaming distancing othering and and even the dehumanizing that we've talked about before um, in some contexts and if we don't do that the uh, the alternative is that those watching poverty live with guilt shame horror or a knowledge that we've got to act. And, um, and I guess I'm curious, what do you think the impact is for a society that is living this way with blinkers on pretending it's okay? Well, it, it means that uh, 200,000 of our children suffer deeply. They're hungry, they have ill health, they won't succeed educationally. Um, they will be more likely to commit crimes. Um, it means that we are uh, half of what we could be. We are desolate, we're deprived, we're depraved. Mm. Um, uh, it, it means that um, we are so much less in so many different ways and, and, and goes deep to this instinct that says, if I have the resources that I have, well, I, I better hoard the ones that I've got because I'm worried what might happen, where actually what might happen, the alternative is really quite extraordinary. Um, we live in a country of abundance. There is truly enough. There is enough if we share. I mean, I, I think the question that I'd want to ask is almost the inverse to that is, what actually might this country be if we did? Like, like, like what would actually happen if everybody had what they needed? Mm. Uh, that's quite an extraordinary um, a possibility to live into. And I think, you know, at the, you asked me the question that, like, that's the big stuff. That's the really big picture stuff that's super threatening. At the much smaller picture is that one of the things I'm often encouraging people to do is to be in relationship with someone who is wildly different than them. Uh, a different colour, a different gender, a different sexuality from a different part of town, a different socioeconomic group, a different ethnicity, just 
be in genuine relationship with someone who is different and see where it takes you. Nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the ultimate about acceptance and diversity and us, us, us growing that. Totally. And, and because when I, when I do that, I think you, I mean, you said it beautifully before, then my ability to other becomes, um, I, I just don't have that ability as much. Because that different person that I thought was not human actually is quite human and quite like me, actually, in lots of different ways. Um, and, and valuable. What, and even in the ways they're hugely different from me, precious and valuable and doing something worthwhile. And, and so it takes us back full circle, mm-hmm. I think, to this, this deep, innate uh, belief in the sanctity of each one of us. But I do believe that the way out and through is in relationship. There's something magic happens when, when, when you and I connect um, and connect at a deeper level, and particularly over time where, there is, mm. where there's a richness for that to build. Mm. Uh, and, and actually, in the end, I think that's really what the mission is doing, is just saying, hello, how um, are you? One of your fellow Aucklanders, Paul Tupovia, whom I'm working with on different models of well-being, he, he says, we call them collectivist cultures, but actually they really are connectivist because mm. they understand the importance of connection. And they're all about creating structures, living in a way that allows us to be and stay connected. Totally. It's a, I mean, I, I couldn't say it. Uh, more beautiful than him, that um, Mother Teresa has a quote that says that um, uh, poverty only exists where we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and, and that's what I understand you're saying that Paul is saying. So I belong to you and you belong to me and your health and well-being is in direct relationship to mine. So and, it, and having 200,000 children in New Zealand fed and safe belongs to all of us totally yeah. it is it's an us and the temptation is to put that responsibility onto the government and they have a particular function in it all i don't want to deny that but that's an us if we wanted that to stop it would have stopped yesterday lots of this does come back to conversations of values and shared values and the prioritization of those resources yeah totally totally it's it's um yeah it's an extraordinary world we live in Oh, it absolutely is. And it's such a treat and a privilege for me to get to listen to you sharing more about yours. So to conclude, Helen, can you tell me, like, you know, on the days when things aren't going well and things are a bit rough, what is it? What what lifts you up? What what do you do to keep pick yourself back up and keep going? Yeah, totally. I think there's two very practical things. I need my people around me at that stage. So um uh, you know, you need to know that you're loved and you belong. So it's, you know, finding my people and saying, I need you, um, which can be as simple as an ice cream or a shared glass of wine or a nice dinner or, or a phone like, call sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conveniently yeah, located. Yeah. So it doesn't need to be big or, you know, extreme. It's just talk to me, someone who loves me. Um, uh, the second thing I think very genuinely when I get like that, it usually means that I'm tired and that I need to sleep or rest. Um, and it's amazing what how I can kind of come back to myself when that happens. Yeah, and I think yeah. that is it, things that allow us to come back to ourselves. 
to come back. I, I drew a cartoon last week of what burnout feels like. And it's like, this is the circle of my life and I'm somewhere off in the distance. Yes, and, totally. You know, Shakespeare got this with sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care. Sleep mm. and our people remind us and put us back in the centre of our lives, don't they? Totally, totally. And I, I um, you know, our brand new building is called Home Ground. And I often think about the deep irony of that, the, the ground of home or finding a way home or it's a it's a truth that speaks to all of us. So home is just so evocative of being inside our own skin and and with our own people and, and connected to our land and and that sense of the sacred that is bigger and beyond all of us. So that is the home. So so when it is hard, I've I've got to find my way home. That's very honest. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank um, you, Denise. And we will put a link up on our page so that if anyone wants to donate, all of you who would like to donate and set up an automatic payment to the City Mission can do so. We'd love to. And just genuinely, Denise, you know, to you and all the people, your team who are with you, thank you for your work and your care. Um, your contribution to this is incredibly important. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity just to have a, an hour with you too. So thank you. Thank you. To support Helen's mission to end poverty and homelessness and support the work of the Auckland City Mission, head to the full show notes at nziwr.co.nz where we have a link for donations or go to aucklandcitymission.org.nz forward slash donate. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. To learn more about how you can build well-being and resilience for your team, go to nziwr.co.nz. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate the podcast to help others who might enjoy it find it more easily. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.